uh, as Glenn said, in about 20 minutes or so, we're going to share communion together. Uh, we're going to eat bread and drink wine to remind ourselves of the death and the sacrifice of, of Jesus. But we're also doing it to celebrate forgiveness, to recall the fact that because of Jesus, because of the cross, because he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, to quote Isaiah, we are free. We kind of thought a little about that this morning, but, but we are free because of Jesus, free from the power and the eternal consequences of sin in our lives. And so it is by his wounds we are healed. We are forgiven. We are whole. We are no longer under condemnation. Those are just some of the things that are true because of Jesus and what he has done for us. And then after communion, we're, we're going to close the service by singing a song which includes these lyrics at the beginning. I'm forgiven because you, Jesus, were forsaken. And I'm accepted because you, Jesus, were condemned. And so as we, we kind of begin to prepare to eat and drink again, which is something I know we do here every week at Windsor, I, I kind of hope and pray tonight that in light of God's love for us in Jesus, which is undeserved and it is extreme, but in light of the forgiveness that we enjoy, I kind of hope and pray that tonight our gratitude to Jesus may be even more tangible than it usually is. And that our worship in response to the forgiveness of Jesus may be wholehearted. That we will find ourselves maybe lost in wonder, love and praise as we eat and drink in a little while. Now the reason that, I, that I've kind of started like this this evening is because we're about to meet and we're about to be confronted with someone who rejoiced extensively in the reality of their forgiveness. They had encountered Jesus they had been loved by Jesus, and they had been forgiven by Jesus. And this person was incredibly grateful, and they knew and they experienced a deep sense of gratitude, and they expressed that gratitude in no uncertain terms, much to the horror of others around them. Thing is, we don't know this person's name. No idea. But her story is, is one of the most shocking, uncomfortable, exciting, and dramatic stories in the whole of the New Testament. And you find it in Luke chapter 7. And it starts at verse 36. So if you have a Bible, I could invite you to turn there. It's page 1036 in the red pew Bibles. Uh, just while you're looking that up, for anybody who is visiting, we as a church are spending Sunday evenings until Easter in Luke's Gospel. And we're just revisiting and reflecting again on the life of Jesus. We're listening to some of his life-changing teaching and we're just watching as he relates to people how, how Jesus interacts, how Jesus behaves in certain situations. And the reason we're doing that is because we, as 21st century disciples, believe that as we observe Jesus, we learn how to live our lives. How to reflect his character. How to walk as Jesus walked. 
And for the past couple of weeks, we've looked at some of his radical teaching from Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, all about things like loving our enemies, about the condition of our hearts, and about the importance of what we say with our lips and what we do with our lives. But this evening, although there's more teaching to hear, the context is very different. Very, very different. Because the setting is a dinner party. And the host is a Pharisee. We do know his name. His name is Simon. Now, generally speaking, Pharisees tended to clash with Jesus. Hardline religious types who thought they were a cut or two above everybody else. They were experts at looking at everybody else's sin. And usually, Pharisees didn't have a lot of time for Jesus for reasons that will become apparent as we go along. Now, Pharisees certainly spent a lot of time with Jesus or in the vicinity of Jesus, but mainly with the intention of sussing him out and trying to trip him up. But there were some within their ranks who seemed a little more open to Jesus. A few who appeared a little more willing to at least give Jesus a fair hearing. And initially, this particular Pharisee, Simon, seems to be one of those. And so according to verse 36, he has invited Jesus to have dinner with him. Which is a positive thing in lots of ways. You see, Jesus had a reputation for eating with all the wrong kinds of people. If you look up at verse 34, you discover that he normally ate with people and earned a reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard. Because he actually spent far too much time with tax collectors and sinners and the like. But on this occasion here, now, and it won't be the last, but he accepts a dinner invitation from the right kind of person, not the wrong kind of person. Although this right kind of person turns out to be the wrong kind of person. But that's rushing too far ahead. Now as you read the rest of the story, and I'm going to kind of walk us through the story, although what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the story in its entirety at the end. But as you read the rest of the story, you discover that there were other guests. This wasn't just a dinner for two. But even before we know that particular detail, and it doesn't become apparent to verse 49, that's when you discover there was more than just Jesus and Simon. But even before we discover that, we're introduced to a third character. She's an unnamed, local, uninvited woman who never says a thing throughout this entire incident. Doesn't speak. Totally silent. All we do know about her Verse 37 is that she's lived a sinful life. That's all we know. And by the way, for those who kind of are pretty familiar with their Bibles, there are similar stories in Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 12. But this one in Luke 7 is different. I really believe that. Different time, different place, different people. Or so it seems. Now, this term, sinful life, is pretty loaded. What we're effectively told is she was a sinner. But then again, we all are. And so it's generally accepted that this woman in question was a prostitute. Or she was the town harlot, as Eugene Peterson describes her in the message. And therefore, her mere presence at what was probably a male-only dinner was in itself relatively awkward. The very fact that a woman who was a prostitute, had gate-crashed this party, was awkward in itself. But then what she went on to do, 
And what she obviously intended to do and came to do, well then it just gets embarrassing. She walks in and she's carrying a jar of perfume. And as she goes and stands behind Jesus, she starts sobbing. She starts crying. And because, and if you were here this morning, because people reclined at tables in that culture, they lay down to eat. When it says that she stood behind Jesus, what that meant was she was standing over his feet. And so what happened was her tears began to drip and fall on the feet of Jesus. And you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife, surely. Jesus doesn't flinch. And then the scene becomes intimate, even more electric, because she bends down and she starts wiping his feet with her hair, kissing them and pouring perfume from this jar onto them. And the intensity of these moments cannot be missed. People in that room, people in that banqueting space would have been astounded. They would have been lost for words. They would have been deeply offended. But yet, Jesus doesn't flinch. Now, as I was preparing for this during the week, I came across a kind of fascinating piece of background information that that definitely feeds into this incident and makes sense as you go along. But apparently in Jewish custom, if somebody had saved your life, then you would subsequently seek them out and kiss their feet. It's just a custom. And as Luke records this story, I wonder did he intend his readers, certainly his first readers, to begin making these connections. That somehow this woman had been saved by Jesus. Either way, turns out everyone is speechless. Although initially... Their minds are racing. They're working overtime and none more so than Simon the host. Who according to verse 39, and look at this, and this is brilliant. Never really noticed this before. But in verse 39 it says, he talks to himself. So he doesn't verbalize his thoughts. He can't bring himself to speak out loud. Instead, he just says into himself these words. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. And what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. And so Simon has clearly made up his mind about this woman. He's definitely made up his mind about Jesus. But he keeps his condemning and judging comments to himself. He just internalizes it all. Or at least so he thinks. Because it turns out that Jesus knows his heart and mind. See it seems that you cannot keep your prejudices secret even if you never articulate them to anybody else. And that in itself is a sobering thought. Because in verse 40, it says, Jesus answered him. Now that's really weird because Simon hadn't spoken to Jesus. Simon had just been thinking this in his head. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, which simply confirms that Jesus does know our thoughts. And in a rather ironic way, it also confirms that Jesus really was a prophet. If this man were a prophet, well, actually, it turns out he is a prophet because he can tell exactly what you're thinking, Simon. Jesus answered him, verse 40. 
I've something to tell you, Simon. And then in typical Jesus fashion, rather than simply say it, he has something to tell Simon, but rather than say it, he tells a short story. He tells a parable because Jesus knows that stories connect. Stories draw you in. Stories enable us to learn so much more. Jesus could have just said what he needed to say to Simon, but instead he tells him a story. He says, okay, there's a, there's a money lender. And two people owe this money lender some cash. One of them owes 500 denarii. The other one owes 50. The issue is neither of them can pay. In simple terms, one owes about a year and a half's worth of wages, whereas the other one owes a couple of months, give or take. And then Jesus says that the money lender forgave both people their debts. Cleared the 50, cleared the 500. And then Jesus asks a question. Okay, which one of the two is going to love the money lender more? And all of a sudden there's a kind of shift in language because Jesus has been talking about debt, now he's talking about love. The answer is obvious. And Simon gets it. Have a look at this. He says, I suppose, and there's, there's almost a sense of, okay, yeah, I suppose. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. They're going to love the money lender more. And Jesus then confirms that Simon has judged correctly. Then the story gets even more dramatic. Because Jesus turns to the woman and he locks eyes with her. And he asks Simon a question. And again, it's a stroke of genius on Jesus' part because Jesus knows that questions take us on a journey of discovery. And so Jesus says, do you see this woman? Excuse me. Do you see this woman, Simon? It's pretty obvious Simon hasn't. Or at least he hasn't seen her the way Jesus does. Simon sees a category of person. He sees a type of person. He sees a sinner. Remember what his thinking was? If you only knew what kind of woman this is. She is a sinner. Jesus, on the other hand, sees a human being. He sees a child of God. He sees beyond the boxes, beyond the categories, beyond the labels that we tend to use and attach to those around us. And then, in a series of contrasts, the woman's actions are set against Simon's. And it turns out that Simon has been less than the perfect host. He hasn't even met the basic standards of hospitality. Simon didn't offer to wash Jesus' feet. It's all here in the text. Didn't offer to wash his feet. Simon didn't greet Jesus with the customary kiss. Simon didn't anoint his guest's head with olive oil. Whereas this woman, she wet his feet with her tears and washed them. She kissed his feet and she poured perfume on them. Therefore, look at verse 47, therefore, I tell you, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven. 
as her great love has shown. I tell you, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But, and here comes the dagger to Simon's heart, whoever has been forgiven little just loves little. See, Simon's response to Jesus was measured and cold. He, like so many of the Pharisees, and like so many decent, religious, upright, relatively good people today, they didn't see their need to be forgiven. Certainly didn't see their need to be forgiven much. And therefore, their love for Jesus was just lukewarm. It was heartless. It was unengaging. Whereas this woman, who had met Jesus recently, and she'd been forgiven by him extravagantly. Well, what we discover is she genuinely loved him. And she loved him passionately. And her expression of that love, her loving actions were exceptional. She knew she was a sinner. She knew she had done so much wrong. She knew her sins were many. Yes, Jesus, I hear what you're saying. My sins are many. I totally accept that. But you know something? My debt has been cleared. My sins have been cleared. Just like those 500 denarii on that guy that owed the most. Totally cleared. And therefore, her loving actions were an expression of her forgiveness and gratitude. And this is really just all I want to say tonight. And I don't want us to miss this. Her forgiveness was not a result of her loving actions, okay? Her forgiveness was not a result of her loving actions. It wasn't because of what she did that she was forgiven. It was all about what Jesus had done. Jesus had forgiven her. Hours before, days before, weeks before. We don't actually know, but the tense of the language here makes it really clear that this is a woman who had met Jesus previously. Jesus had forgiven her of her sin, and therefore her loving actions were an expression of her forgiveness and gratitude. Her forgiveness was not a result of her loving actions. We need to make sure we get this round the right way. She loved much. Why did she love much? Because she knew she had been forgiven much. And as we come to this table this evening, and as I read this story during the week, I kind of realized that here we are once again, staring at the cost of our forgiveness in the face, so to speak. Because while we were still sinners... While we were still sinners, while we were in desperate need of God's forgiveness, what happened? Christ died for us. Our debt, my debt to God, as Glennis actually said earlier, my debt to God was immense. It was huge. And if you go back to the story of the moneylender, whenever the moneylender forgives those two debts, the 500 and the 50, the reality is, that he then incurs the debts himself. He now takes the hit. He was owed 500, he was owed 50, but he's cleared them. So he now has incurred the debts himself. 
And whenever you begin to see that aspect of the story, you then begin to get something of an insight into the forgiveness of God. Because whenever God forgives us, the debt doesn't disappear. Somebody has to pay the debt. And that somebody was Jesus, who cleared it on our behalf, which is why the Bible says he, Jesus, personally carried, not his sins, our sins, our debts in his body on the cross. And therefore, as I stand before you this evening, I again realize I have been forgiven so much. And the question then is, how do I approach this table each week? Do I approach it with a huge sense of gratitude because of how much Jesus has forgiven me? Just like this woman. Will I love Jesus even more than any of you here this evening? Why? Because I appreciate my forgiveness more than anybody else here this evening. The reality is, I take my forgiveness for granted so often. And then the challenge is to kind of go from here to perform loving actions as an expression of my gratitude and forgiveness. I can't physically wash, wipe, and kiss the feet of Jesus in order to say thank you for saving me and loving me to that extent. But I can leave here tonight and live a life of obedient surrender to Jesus. I can leave here to express loving actions in gratitude for my forgiveness as I reflect the character of Jesus and how I live my life. As I choose to be loving and joyful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. I can go from here and express my love for Jesus in very tangible ways. And sometimes those tangible ways, just like the woman's in this story, will be misunderstood. Sometimes I may offend certain sensibilities because I want to express my love for Jesus. Why do I want to do it? In light of the recognition that I've been forgiven so much. And therefore, I want to love much. And I'm willing or prepared to be ridiculed, to be talked about, to be written off. But there's another dimension, unless I finish. Whenever we realize how much we have been forgiven, surely we are better placed and more likely to love others in need of forgiveness. You see, sometimes there's a very real danger whenever we compare ourselves to those around us and we think, well, do you know something? I'm not as bad as that person. And I think this is where Simon messed up. I'm not as sinful as that person. And yet whenever you go down that particular road and you're thinking there is a risk that you come to the conclusion that you have been forgiven little in comparison. Here is somebody who has lived a pretty rough life and they needed to be forgiven much. They were more lost than I was. But the problem is that ever we think that, we need to hear these words of Jesus to Simon. Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So the question is this. Does my life express a deep, genuine, tangible love for Jesus? Because it will 
if I appreciate how much I've been forgiven. But if I feel I've just been forgiven a little in comparison to other people, then maybe the danger will be not only will I love God less, but I might even also love others little. And the story in Luke 7 ends with Jesus confirming that our sins have been forgiven. As I said, the way the language of this this passage is, is structured, this is not the first time Jesus is forgiving her her sins. She has met Jesus previously. That's why she has come and done what she has done to express her gratefulness for his forgiveness. But now here at the end of the incident, Jesus confirms that her sins are forgiven. And at this point, we discover there are other guests in the room. We're now at verse 49. And they start expressing their concerns. Again, what's fascinating, they don't do it directly. They start talking amongst themselves, not to Jesus. And they say, who is this who even forgives sins? And what you find is the woman's becoming irrelevance again. Their problem is with Jesus, who somehow seems to be claiming the authority of God. Because according to their understanding, God and God alone could forgive sins. And the very fact that Jesus is now saying your sins are forgiven, he is assuming that he's God, and that offended them far more than this woman did. And so Jesus just lets them wrestle with their issues. And he just turns to the woman, and he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And we're left to assume that she did, rejoicing in her forgiveness, and having done something significant to express her gratitude. And that is what we are about to do now. We are about to do something incredibly significant to express our gratitude. And so as I say, my prayer tonight is is that as we sing a song in a moment, thank you for saving me. What can I say? Mercy and grace are mine. Forgiven is my sin. That maybe tonight, maybe tonight, as a result of of engaging with this story, we will each of us sit before God and say, do you know something, God? Thank you that you have forgiven me in Jesus so much. Therefore, I love you so much. And I want to eat and drink to say thank you for that. Let's read the story together once again as we close. Luke 7, starting at verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he cancelled the debts of both. 
Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I come into your house. You did not give me water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. She's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who has forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace.